This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Candace Keener, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. Hey, Jane. You know, I really hope that you have a lot of time on your hands because I thought I would cover the entire history of the Ottoman Empire today. Ugh, let me get some coffee. <laughs> I know. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Um, there are a couple of highlights we need to go over in order to put into context this crazy, crazy idea that Jane has written about, and that is... Why were people actually vying to become slaves in the Ottoman Empire? When I first heard the uh, the assignment, I had no idea, but it actually ended up being a really fascinating um, development that happened in the Ottoman Empire. And, and, and it actually came from one of our podcast listeners. That's right. He wrote to us and he sort of challenged us to research this and answer the question, why? Why would anyone want to be a slave? It's, mm-hmm. it's just so ludicrous. Yeah, and he was really helpful as well with the research. He was, yeah. so many, many thanks. So it all dates back to the 14th century. And uh, at this time, the Ottomans had this, uh, they went by this Muslim law. I'm not sure of the pronunciation, so please excuse me, uh, Ghanimat. And this law stated that the sultan could basically take one-fifth of the booty his soldiers uh, collected in battle. And usually this has to do with, like, material goods, you know, uh, that uh, soldiers collected. But one uh, ruler, Orhan, actually adapted this law to apply to people in addition to things. And so he started taking one out of five captured people that his soldiers uh, took over, and he took them in as sort of his slaves, but not just normal slaves. He made it sort of his personal army, and they became a very elite corps known as uh, Janissaries. 
That's right. So it seems like a remarkable idea having slave soldiers essentially manufactured from the spoils of war. And this is not a concept that stuck just under this one sultan. His son actually followed the same principle. And Murad I actually wanted to increase the number of his troops. So he started going into conquered Christian territories and taking young boys between the ages of 8 and 18 and picking the very, very best ones to make this incredibly prestigious corps of soldiers that would serve the sultan exclusively. Yeah, and one important distinction that Murad had to deal with was the fact that he wasn't as as acquiring as many lands as his dad did. Though, according strictly to to Muslim law, at least from what I read, it was okay uh, for Orhan to do what he was doing, but what his son was doing was a little bit more shady because he was going into lands that were previously conquered, not freshly conquered, and so these were maybe descendants of conquered people, and so they tried to, to um, uh, rationalize what they were doing by saying it was okay. But um, but even Muslims at this time uh, argued against this practice of taking these boys. And at this point, I think it might be helpful to know a little bit about the Ottoman Empire and, and its principles of expansion and how it maintained pockets of Christian people throughout what was ostensibly a Muslim empire. The Ottoman Empire actually lasted a remarkably long time from 1301 to 1922. It didn't really crumble into pieces until after World War One and the Balkan Wars. And what's so interesting about the Ottoman Empire is that it sort of picked up where the, the Byzantine Empire left off. And when they conquered the Christians from the Byzantine Empire, they actually maintained the same capital city, only they changed the name. So instead of Constantinople, Istanbul became the seat of the Ottoman Empire. So if you ever heard that song about the Istanbul and then Constantinople, you'll know that this is why, because uh, different people would take over and, and rename it. And according to some history books, when uh, the Sultan rode into Constantinople to take it over, he came in on a, on a white horse. It was sort of this crowning moment of um, Constantinople going by the wayside and Istanbul becoming established. And it was run by Muslim principles, uh, religious principles, and military principles, and they were very rigid. But one of the codes actually dictated that they were to respect other religions, and it really behooved the sultan to allow the Christians and the empire to continue practicing their religion. Because, first of all, there were so many of them that if he tried to get them to convert, it would resort to an awful uprising, and rather than oppress the people... He just decided to sort of live along with them. Yeah, but this caused problems because he saw a dilemma. If he were to, um, when he wanted to boost his, his Janissary uh, corps, he, he would have taken Muslim kids. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is that he reasoned that if they, they grew up, they would remain faithful to their family. And their family, the relatives, would just assume that they wouldn't have to pay taxes because they have these friends in high places. So the sultan reasoned that if he took uh, Christian boys instead and converted them to Islam, that they would grow to uh, hate to their Christian families and the Christian religion in general so that they would not have any uh, loyalty to their old families, their old life, and they would be loyal to the sultan alone. And the practice of collecting these Christian boys was called the Devstrom system, and it essentially gave the sultan... Uh, the right to go in and to inspect all the Christian boys from a certain village and to essentially pick them over and deem which ones were well-behaved enough and 
untrained in any sort of combat and handsome enough and desirable enough for him to want to essentially have living in his palace under him one day. Yeah, and these were really fascinating um things that would go on. The, the officials would be sent into these conquered territories. Right now we'd know them as, as Greece, Austria, uh, Albania, Bulgaria, Hungary, all, all these places. And the officials would go in and, and to these villages there and they would tell their fa- the fathers to bring out their sons of the right age and uh, bring out the baptism certificates uh, to make sure they uh, fit some of this criteria. For instance, they couldn't be orphans. Uh, they couldn't be only sons, etc. And it's estimated that about one in 40 families in a village had to sacrifice a boy to the Janissary Corps. And once the boy was selected, they'd be taken to Istanbul. And for three to seven years, they would undergo rigorous training. First, they would learn Turkish, and then they'd be schooled in combat. And depending on the type of talent they showed and their potential, they'd be put on different paths. So some went directly to labor in the fields or to serve as assistants to different government officials. And then there were some who were deemed intelligent enough to be schooled in academic subjects such as math, law, theology, and uh, horsemanship and military strategy. And these were going to be the really, really great elite soldiers. Yeah, so you really aspired, if you were a janissary, you really aspired to be a part of the standing army at the Sultan's Palace. And that's where these people on the highest, these soldiers on the highest track would, would end up going. And uh, I think the the most prominent one would actually be a personal servant of, of the Sultan. And um, they basically had such great prospects ahead of them. They once... They prove themselves. They could go on to have administrative posts and have so much power involved, even though they were always technically slaves and personal slaves of the sultan. They were able to attain um, amazing amounts of power. And to sort of give you a, a visual image, they wore pretty elaborate uniforms, too. They had fancy hats and really ornately embroidered cloaks. And I think that the sultan gave each boy a particular cloak or there was some unique aspect to each of their attire. Mm -hmm. And um, they were celibate. They couldn't marry, at least until the 16th century. The rules changed a little bit there. That was a big issue. And And they were upheld to very, very rigorous standards. They had to follow all the rules. And if they broke any of them, there was well, you know, there was, you know, what to pay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the cases like they would be whipped uh, with a thin cane on the soles of their feet. That was one punishment for um, disobeying rules and training. So historians suspect that over the course of history and over the course of the different sultans, nearly five million Christian boys were taken from their homes to become Janissaries. It's and an astounding figure when you it think really about it. It really is. And it's very problematic for us today with our contemporary mindsets, looking at this idea of... um a, a foreign force coming in and kidnapping, well, kidnapping, essentially, I guess that's a debatable term to use, but taking children from their homes and repurposing them into slavery. But the term slavery is used sort of loosely in the Ottoman Empire. And the idea of a slave was comparable to that of a, a servant. And it was considered more prestigious than that of a subject. So if you were the sultan's slave or the sultan's servant, you had a a higher regard in society than his subject. Yeah, and this had to do with the the idea that they had so many um, prospects ahead of them as a janissary. Um, 
like I mentioned, they, they got a lot of power. One, there was at least one situation where uh, someone rose from the ranks. He was originally taken in through the Devsherm system as a boy and kidnapped, and he rose to the ranks to the Grand Vizier, uh, which basically means the chief minister. I, I think it's the one of the highest positions you could get aside from all-out sultan. So it's just astounding to think that this technical slave was like second in command in this empire. And to put it in another type of perspective, the Ottoman Empire was able to grow and flourish because it kept expanding its lands. It was sort of like a a house of cards empire. It's, if you can say business model, the business model of the empire was entirely based on the fact that it had to keep growing in order to thrive. And once it stopped growing, the empire collapsed. Sounds like like a Ponzi Ponzi scheme. scheme. Jane's giving me this look. I know exactly what she's thinking. (laughs) Um, And the reason that it had to keep growing was because when it went into a territory, it would use up all of the resources there and all of the people, virtually drain everything to the ground. And so if you look at the territories that have been conquered and filled with Christian people, if the Ottomans were coming in and depleting their resources and working the people to their bones, they had children, what could they really provide them with? You know, it accepts life in stasis, life in these poor conditions. So for many Christian families, the idea of giving up their child to the sultan for a life in the palace and perhaps a very high administrative position was a much better trade-off than living in poverty. Yeah, so while at first you have the situation where some Christian parents are trying to... um to buy their children out of the system and trying to switch out. I, I read about a situation where Christian parents would try to switch out their child for, for someone else's early on when the system was first starting. And then much later, when they saw the, the prospects that these kids would have, they would actually try to bribe the officials into taking their child into the system. Even, I guess these must not have been extremely devout Christians, because even though they had to be uh, converted to to Islam, uh, these parents were willing to uh, get the, their kids out of the uh, penury in which they lived. And according to some historical accounts, there were some Muslim families that were trying to get the sultan to take their kids. Yeah, and that's understandable. I mean, if you're a Muslim and you see all these Christian kids getting all these mm-hmm. these opportunities, and you're like, why can't I get that for my child? And that was forbidden. No Muslim children had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. But a question that I had for Jane when she originally wrote this article about the Janissaries was... What did the Janissaries themselves think of their lives? I mean, their their parents were vying for them to become slaves in many instances, and many people wanted into this system. But once they were there, what did they think of their life? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question, but you'd think uh, because of all their prestige and, you know, how they they showed themselves off with their nice clothes and everything, it seemed like you would have a pretty sweet life and you would appreciate it. That's that's the impression that I got from Janissaries. And then along in 1826 came the uh, auspicious incident. Yeah, this was a major problem that um, the power sort of went to their head a lot. All throughout their history, Janissaries would revolt and they try to get more power than they had, often like to get reform or to just get a more of a say into who became Sultan. Yeah, in the 19th century, 1826, like you said, they revolted again. And this time it was disaster. Yeah, the Sultan was none too happy. Uh, he essentially dissolved the Janissary Corps. And to quell the rebels, he fired cannons at them. And most of them actually died. It's pretty tragic. Yeah, and yeah, those who didn't die were fleeing from the carnage. So it was a, I'm not sure why it's called the auspicious incident, but, um, (laughs) uh, but yeah, it's a, it's pretty nasty. Maybe the Janissaries had a really good sense of irony. Yeah, I'm not sure. But, um, that in itself, if, if there's 
not a lot of information about how the Janissaries felt really about being Janissaries. I think that the auspicious incident would indicate that certainly they were pretty fed up with their conditions. And it's important to note, too, that um, the Sultan, the the office of Sultan or the idea of Sultan had really evolved throughout the Ottoman Empire. And at first there was um, strict adherence to codes and the Sultan was not a figure to be messed with. He was very well regarded in public society. But as the empire stretched on, the sultan became less concerned about what people thought about him. So he became a little bit less popular. I think that the rules were relaxed and there was some unrest brewing. And um, there were other cultures around the world who were looking at Turkey uh, and Istanbul, and they started calling Turkey the sick man of Europe. And this is when the term Oriental, which we consider now a disparaging term, and even mm-hmm. back then it was a disparaging term too, but this is when it came into um, conversation, I guess, about what was going on in the Ottoman Empire. And they were seen as uh, revelers, people who engaged in far too much debauchery. Uh, it was associated with the harem and this really sort of strange and lazy lifestyle. And the Janissaries, it was almost like a, an institution of decadence. They'd once been really great soldiers in high regard under the Sultan and who wouldn't want to be in service to the Sultan. But as the yeah. Sultan became less popular and they were serving this man who was sort of despised by other countries and other cultures, I guess there wasn't that sense of pride and honor anymore. Yeah, and it's such a fascinating situation just thinking about how these they have this, you'd think, very contrary... Uh, Terms. It seems like an oxymoron to be, you know, a slave soldier in this elite, very elite, powerful corps. And I should mention, um, when I first got this assignment, it was pretty funny because uh, a couple weeks beforehand, uh, our colleague Molly Edmonds, you might know from the uh, stuff your mom never told you podcast, she actually uh, was getting coming up with nicknames for everyone around the office out of the dictionary, and she went ran across Janissaries, and that became my nickname. And then a couple weeks later, I had to write about them, so I had to mention that. Does she still call you Janissaries? <laughs> oh yeah, she does. <laughs> oh, we'll have to talk about that later. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you like the podcast, you will love our new Stuff You Missed in History Class blog. Yeah, Candace and I uh, both are on this blog uh, once a day, and we write about um, uh, history in the news and relevant stuff that interests us, and we think will interest you, too. So be sure, when you come to the website, to look at this article that Jane has written about why people were vying to become slaves in the Ottoman Empire, that you also check out the blog on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homan, Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. The future is closer than you think. And it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Kara Price, 
as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.